Mother's Day is right around the corner. And in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry. The world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On the Bechdel cast, the questions asked if movies have women in them. Are all their discussions just boyfriends and husbands, or do they have individualism? The patriarchy's effing vast. Start changing it with the Bechdel cast. Welcome to the Bechdel cast. My name is Jamie Loftus. My name is Caitlin Durante. Jamie, do you want to come down into my labyrinth with me? No, sounds scary. (laughs) (laughs) Don't like that initiation. Um, Well, wait, I actually have a question. This is a movie, right? So if there's a labyrinth, it's probably a really drawn out metaphor for uh, a womb. Is it not? Perhaps. There's a vagina in the floor and we've got to climb in. This happens in, I would say, 40% of movies. (laughs) Well, remember the the floor vagina from Mother! Exclamation point. Right, the floor vagina. I haven't thought about that in forever. It happens so much. Male auteurs, they're at it again. At least this is is a great movie. But I was like, there it is. I forgot the last time I watched Pan's Labyrinth. I I didn't know about the cultural sensation that is floor vagina (laughs) (laughs) or vagina head vaginas come in many forms we have two floor vaginas this month alone i mean the descent yeah cave vagina (laughs) shocking wow um anyway here we are yes sure i well is are there two doug jones in your floor vagina i guess i'll come in As long as he's there. As long as he's there. Feel safe. So this is the Bechtel cast. Welcome. We are a movie podcast in which we analyze popular films, usually sometimes unpopular. I don't know. In any case, we analyze films. Influential, for better or worse. Influential films. 
through an intersectional feminist lens. Mm -hmm. And we use the Bechtel test simply as a way to inspire a larger conversation about representation, inclusivity, intersectionality. And what, Jamie, what yeah. is it? What's the Bechtel test? Oh, the Bechtel test. Well, it is a media metric invented by Alison Bechtel, sometimes called the Bechtel-Wallace test. That requires, uh, for our purposes, there's different variants of the test, mm -hmm. but for our test, it requires that uh, there are two people of a marginalized gender with names talking to each other about something other than a man for two lines of dialogue. That's all it takes. Shouldn't be that awfully hard. You can talk about floor vagina. You cannot talk about Doug Jones. Mm. Sometimes it's hard, but... Uh, <laughs> But we uh, we will get, I mean, it's, you know, this movie passes. It does. There, the podcast is over. <laughs> you can stop listening. Done. There's nothing left to discuss. Done. Um, <laughs> but that is that is the Bechtel test. Uh, but we use it as a jumping off point for a, a, a larger discussion. Indeed. And I'm so excited about our discussion today. I'm so excited about our guest today. You already know him. You already love him because he's our producer. He's our dear friend. You remember him from the Pacific Rim episode. Hell he's yeah. the sweetest. He's simply the best. He's an uncle now. He's an uncle. And he's Del Toro's number one fan mm -hmm. <laughs> is the credit... <laughs> That he wanted. It's a credit currently being sported <laughs> on his very shirt. Courtesy of a gift that I bravely gave him. Brave. Very brave. It's Aristotle Acevedo. Hello. Hello. Hi. Happy to be back. Oh, we're so happy to have you. We've missed you so much. It has been far too long. I know. It really has. Well, because someone was just asking about you, and because of how you record in the quarantine we're, it's just a very bare bones operation with me and Jamie, um, mm -hmm. but we still need you, Aristotle, and that's why you're here. We do. Yay. And we've been, we've been, I mean, this works out on so many levels because you are number one Del Toro head, and uh, people have been requesting Pan's Labyrinth for so long. I imagine mm -hmm. it's pretty high up there. What's your like history with this movie? And I guess with the Del Toro fandom at large. I remembered this the other day, and it may date me a bit, but I still remember seeing the poster for the first time right here at the Alhambra Renaissance when I was just a kid, mm. uh, and seeing it and thinking like, what the fuck, a movie called Pan's Labyrinth, and you're not going to have Peter Pan in it? That's so dumb. <laughs> like, I was so mad that they took <laughs> Peter Pan's name, Did it? but, you know, I was a foolish child that knew nothing, and then... Uh, I don't remember the first time I saw it, but I remember really being blown away and immediately remembering that moment and thinking, wow, what that was what a <laughs> stupid thing. <laughs> oh, that's the best. Jamie, what about you? What's your history with it? Um, I remember seeing this movie for the first time after school at my aunt's house because she had like movie channels. Ooh. And we did not have movie channels. This was at my... Now Trump supporting aunt's house. We've uh -oh. simply fallen out of touch. Uh, but I did. There was a point in time where she had the channel Showtime and I wanted to watch a cool movie. So I watched it and I loved it. I definitely, I don't know. I was probably in like middle schoolish. If it was like 
uh, shortly after this movie came out. I didn't know who Del Toro was at this time, but it was my first Del Toro movie. And so I hold it very close to my heart. And it holds up. It's so good. It does. Um, yeah. What about you, yeah. Katie? I was in college when it came out, and I think I saw it somewhere around that time, mm-hmm. maybe like a year or two after 06 when it came out. Oh, it was 06. Okay, yeah. Y- right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I was like, oh my God, this movie is so good. And I wish I had spent my life watching it more frequently because I think I've only seen it. I think I watch it once every like four years or so. Mm -hmm. So I've seen it like three or four times in the past. But every time I watch it, I'm like, oh, my this is incredible. I love this movie. It's so the story is so well crafted. It's beautiful. The animatronics of it all. uh, The Doug Jones of it all that. I this is the first time I've seen this movie since like American fascism really ramped up. So mm-hmm. yeah, same whole new vibe going on with this with this viewing. <laughs> oh, how nothing has changed. Yeah, <laughs> truly. But like, yeah, this is basically you know 1944 Franco's Spain all over again. This was also, I think, the just to expose uh, some of the huge gaps in the American public education system slash education system at large. Um, I think that this movie was the first any in-depth look I had at Francoist Spain at all. Like, I think I had it referenced in school, but it certainly was never something that I learned extensively about. Like, Pan's Labyrinth was truly what i was like oh i should find out what is supposed to be happening in this movie because i just (laughs) it was very glossed over at school for me anyways i didn't even it didn't even get covered same in any history class i ever took or anything like that del toro has the only reason i honestly know that it happened and know who franco is but even for this i tried to do a little bit of research and it is Mm -hmm. so Complicated. I can't even pretend to understand what happened. I, I, for context corner, I was like, all right, we got to do a breakdown of Franco of Spain. And then I was just like, I don't think I'm equipped to do this. <laughs> just read the Wikipedia page, everyone. Like it is, yeah. it is incredibly dense. Um, and mm-hmm. I think, I think it's also just like incredible writing on Del Toro's part that it's like he's able to present everything in a very historically accurate way, in a way that isn't like completely overwhelming or like if you don't fully understand the context it doesn't extremely hinder your viewing of the movie but if you do know the context it enriches it it's i'm always really impressed when people can mm-hmm. write like that it's a miracle it's incredible yeah yes but also in doing some of the research i, I did a little re- research i read, I read some essays wow brag uh you know i have some books <laughs> Uh, on Del Toro specifically, one of them kind of referenced uh, kind of his inaccuracy in the Ooh. Spanish Civil War in that there's still a lot of sugarcoating that happens that Spain itself is still kind of reconciling with, that the resistance was actually somewhat puppeted by communist Russia at the time and kind of no. used them and deceived them to even ensure Franco's victory. Uh, and like it's a whole no. very weird... and that. You know, the Francoist regime was as brutal as depicted in the movie, mm-hmm. but that the resistance was also sometimes equally as brutal. Like they were also indiscriminately 
just murdering priests, anyone related to the church hmm. before. And it was kind of like a back and forth of those kinds of things. I was like, ah, shit. <laughs> Holy shit. I really was hoping for a good versus evil. Uh, and I think it still was because Franco was evil. But Eviler, little... yeah. Right. Yeah. The, the greater of two evils. Wow, I didn't realize that. Man, history is bleak. And that, that too is like, oh, I, this is so much deep. Like, I truly can't even pretend to know. Like, that's just kind of right. a scratch of what I read. So if I'm totally wrong, I'm mm -hmm. sorry. That's fascinating. Hmm. Well, shit. God damn. <laughs> Should we talk about the movie? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> All right. Um, so the recap goes as follows. I left some stuff out just because it's such a rich story with a lot of moving parts. So my recap isn't necessarily going to do this a huge amount of justice. I just recommend that everyone watch this movie because it's so terrific it's streaming on netflix as we speak Ooh, uh, or at least i hope it still is at the time of this release but um yeah just watch the movie because my my recap kind of skims over some stuff but in any case we get some um text on the screen at the very beginning to provide some historical context it is spain in 1944 it's a few years after the spanish civil war and we learn that a group of like guerrilla rebel soldiers are hiding in the mountains fighting against the fascist regime. Then we get a little bit of a fairy tale introduction where once upon a time there was a princess who lived in the underworld, but she escaped to the human world, kind of forgot her identity, eventually died there. She became mortal and died there. But her father, the king of the underworld, knew her soul would one day return. So that's the kind of fairy tale backstory we need to know. Mm -hmm. Princess Moana? Moana! <laughs> it's like, ooh, interesting. Yeah, Makes I'm like, okay, think. all my favorite princesses are named Moana. <laughs> So then we're back in 1944 Spain. We meet Ophelia. She's 10 years old. She loves fairy tales. And she is traveling with her mother, who is undoubtedly Gregnant. She is Gregnant with a confirmed Greg. With with a confirmed Greg, who mm. is, a, is a Greg that's giving her problems. A problematic Greg. <laughs> <laughs> She's late in her problematic... Gregnancy. Gregnancy, yes. In the third trimester of the Gregnancy. So anyway, um, Ophelia and her mother are traveling to the countryside. Along the way, Ophelia sees this large insect that she thinks might be a fairy. And she mm -hmm. also sees an entrance to this old labyrinth made of stone near the house where she and her mother will be living in. And this is also where Olivia's new stepfather, Captain Vidal, has set up this base camp um, because he is in the military of the aforementioned fascist government searching for the aforementioned rebels who are hiding in the nearby mountains. And the captain, I feel like, embodies, again, in like a good way, but, it be, but because I feel like this movie has i he's like patriarchy the character <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's like an embodiment of toxic masculinity and fascist ideology everything that's wrong mm -hmm. that's him <laughs> that's that's his character yes but also we're seeing it through her like a, a child dies so it makes like i mean i don't he's he's just he's 
a villain. He's simply a villain. One of the best movie villains, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think if this movie were less well written, he could easily come off as like one of these very cartoony villains. And he is he's extremely evil. He's horrible. It works for the story, though. I mean, it definitely works. It works for the story, especially because it is like this is a a fair, a dark, grim fairy tale. Yeah. And he's very he's like borderline cartoonishly evil. But then you're like, remember, like, well, there were like fascist assholes who were not right. unlike this guy in real life. Fascist so. assholes. And also worth worth the note that Hispanic culture in general is very patriarchy, male dominated, like man is the man, uh, mm. ruler over every, mm. like the, the language in itself is also completely binary and male is the dominant. Mm-hmm. To the point where he, I mean, I don't know, he does so many cartoonishly evil things. But when he like goes to his dying wife's side and is like, if it comes down to it, save Greg. And then he just like <laughs> leaves. You're like, geez, man. Damn. Yeah. Leave the room at least. She might have heard that. <laughs> that. Yeah, she's right there. She can hear she's you. She's right there, sir. He's, so he's, he's completely awful. Damn. And uh, so this is kind of who Ophelia is up against. Um, we also meet Mercedes. She is a housekeeper, um, and we meet a doctor. They both kind of tend to the captain and his people, but we get a reveal that they are both secretly a part of this resistance, and they've been helping the rebels, sneaking food and supplies to them. Um, then on Ophelia's, I think it's her first night there, the insect-slash-fairy shows up and beckons Ophelia to follow it into the labyrinth. And there she meets a fawn who thinks that Ophelia is the princess from the fairy tale in the beginning. And he has been like awaiting her return. And as you said, Jamie, uh, the princess's name is Moana, but with two N's. I am Moana. Moana. (laughs) With two N's. (laughs) With two N's. (laughs) So the fawn gives Ophelia three tasks to complete by the next full moon. The first task is to feed these magic stones to a giant toad who lives in a nearby tree, um, who's been kind of like wreaking havoc on this tree. And she has to retrieve the key from inside the toad, which she successfully does. I love the toad scene. (laughs) Oh, so scary. (laughs) I never remember what happens to the toad. It basically just barfs up all of its guts and then it's like deflates. skin shell just sort of deflates like a mm-hmm. balloon. Oh my. There's a lot of like really horror imagery, like graphic violence and just like really scary stuff. It usually happens pretty quick. Yeah. And you don't actually get a lot of views of the like the scene where he smashes a face in with the bottle, right? With the bottle, uh, and you ne- you don't actually see his face. You kind of get a moment of it being smashed in, but it's not like other gory movies where it's like we're gonna give you the full look into his bleeding skull, like kind of. Mm-hmm. It, it's a very quick thing most of the time. That's still the worst one for me. That one's really bad. Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah but uh, uh, I was reading that Del Toro based that off of something that actually happened yeah i could find that quote right now i was just reading it (laughs) yeah awful 
Um, okay, so she's got the key from the toad. Meanwhile, Vidal is getting closer to the rebels in the mountains. One of them is Mercedes' brother. Also, Ophelia's mother is her her difficult pregnancy is, is getting worse. Mm-hmm. Um, she's having pain and bleeding. Then the fawn shows up and he's like, Ophelia, you haven't done your next task yet. You have to go into this dangerous place. Take the key with you. You'll see this feast laid out before you, but don't eat or drink anything. That's very important. So she goes into this place and there's this uh, scary creature, the pale man, also Doug Jones. She sneaks past it and uses the key to retrieve this dagger. But the feast is very tempting and she is a child with not much willpower. So she eats a couple grapes and it awakens the pale man who has eyeballs in his hands. It's very scary. Mm -hmm. And it kills two of the fawn's little like fairy friends. But Ophelia manages to escape and the fawn shows up again and he's like, um, you ate the things that I told you not to eat. You're not worthy. You're never allowed to come back into the labyrinth again. You can't be the princess. And then right after this, Ophelia's mother dies during childbirth. The baby survive. The Greg does survive. His name is Greg. Canonically, I believe he's credited as, as, as Greg. Greg. Yeah. <laughs> baby Greg. So... Meanwhile, Vidal is like figuring out that the doctor and Mercedes have been helping the rebellion. So Mercedes makes a run for it and takes Ophelia with her. But Vidal catches them trying to leave. And then he's about to interrogate Mercedes. But she fights back, stabs him a couple times, and then runs away. The greatest scene. Oh, so cathartic. It's fun. But then Vidal's army surrounds her as she's running away. But the gorillas are hiding nearby and they like sniper shoot the bad guys. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, uh, the fawn comes back to Ophelia and he's like, okay, you know what? I decided to give you one more chance for your last task. You have to come to the labyrinth and bring your baby brother, Greg, (laughs) and you have to do everything I say without question. So Ophelia snatches the baby from Vidal's office, but she gives Vidal this strong sedative and he's trying to chase after her through the labyrinth. And then Ophelia comes upon the opening of the underworld and the fawn is like, okay, you have to sacrifice your baby brother because we need the blood of an innocent to open the portal to the underworld. And she's like, um, fuck no, dude, this is a baby. I'm not going to hurt it. Just then Vidal shows up, takes the baby and shoots Ophelia. And then the tears just start bursting from your head. And then... That's how that works, yeah. (laughs) And then when Vidal emerges from the labyrinth, the rebels have him surrounded and they kill him in another very cathartic scene. And then we cut back to Ophelia, who is dying, and her spilt blood and her refusal to hurt her brother and sacrifice herself instead opens the portal to the underworld where she is revived and she reunites with her true mother and father, the king and queen of the underworld. And then kind of the last little bit of the movie is she leaves kind of like hints of her, her herself on earth like a little flower. 
And that's... So you're saying that she dies and doesn't fall asleep, <laughs> right? Because I was just worried that you were going to be bringing okay. that energy in, on, onto the cast. You know what? I I gave this a lot of thought. <laughs> she definitely doesn't fall. I mean, she's only with dead people. But I mean, you <laughs> could say the same thing for, well, what happens in Titanic? Mm. You know what, Jamie? <laughs> I think... Well, here's the thing. James Cameron, if you read his script... He leaves it intentionally ambiguous in the Titanic screenplay, whereas Guillermo del Toro has stated pretty definitively that the fairy tale aspect of this movie is real and that she does, in fact, die at the end and go into the underworld, and that's all real. So, point James Cameron and Guillermo del Toro are friends. So. <laughs> It's conceivable that Del Toro saw the end of Titanic and was like, oh my God, I love this beautiful climactic ending scene in certainly heaven. Uh, let me <laughs> let me draw from this uh, for for my own movie. James Cameron is my friend. I'm also like that which led me down a whole other rabbit hole of like, what are those convers I feel like those must be some of like the weirdest conversations. <laughs> between two people you could ever find like i would love to just hack in and see <laughs> what those guys are talking about in the emails well I feel zoom like bomb them valtero's got navi jpegs in his gmail for hmm. sure Okay, well, counter counterpoint. <laughs> yeah. Del Toro saw the end of Titanic. He read the screenplay and he's just like, I don't like how ambiguous this is. <laughs> I think that James Cameron really left it open to interpretation so much so that some really brilliant people out there easily interpret the end of Titanic as a dream. So I want to make sure my ending is a little bit more concrete counter counter counterpoint <laughs> <laughs> del toro it's you know the 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 heaven in in pan's labyrinth or the you know the underworld mm -hmm. is a beautiful shimmering gold which i think is a direct reference to the heaven that is uh, painted <laughs> at the end of titanic where the room is uh, more luminescent and the lighting is different and you look up to the sky and it's so beautiful and you're like wow that must be what heaven is like a place full of dead people that you knew <laughs> and but isn't that also what dreams are like every time i not dream always. it's full of all the dead no, people i know my, my dreams are not like that i'll tell you oh that's okay that's a great counter 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 counterpoint is that dreams are usually terrifying i had a dream last night that adam sandler kept mailing bras that weren't my size to my house weird that's not oh. heaven at all that's hell but was there gold in the background gold and light there was no then... gold there was no gold he was sending it through amazon so it wasn't even ethical he <laughs> oh was sending gosh. me the wrong size bra to my house over and over and over and over and over and i don't want to know what that dream means but i did have it <laughs> well i can see that we'll never agree on this so <laughs> i have somewhat of a counterpoint here that, 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 please, that, that please. Uh, is an odd thing i encountered in the research in this in the essay i'm probably going to be referring to a lot mm -hmm. that i was surprised to read because it's kind of a not a harsh criticism, but a little bit. It's a bit of a criticism on Guillermo del Toro, mm -hmm. which I was uh, I was happy to read. And it's exactly that that the writer criticizes, is that he is one of the most vocal directors 
when it comes to his own films and loves to explain every bit of it. Mm -hmm. But that then doesn't allow for your interpretation of it. He is Mm -hmm. actively directing everyone's view of how he wants his movies to be, which is kind of what you want to do. But he's very heavily influencing everyone that loves him. And now you can't find a flaw in it because he told you what to look for. Mm -hmm. Uh, Opposed to being a little more, you know, critical of like, well, actually, I don't think it means that, you know. Just because you say it means that you're still, you still might be blind to what you're right. subconsciously sure. doing here. That's interesting that's though, because I think that in this movie, that's why I like was kind of going back and forth about like, okay, is it real? Is this like just Ophelia's coping mechanism for for like dealing with living in this like fascist household, or is this? Are there actually like fairy tale elements happening in her to her like in reality? Because I think the movie gives you enough clues for both sides of the argument that it is still open to interpretation. Um, so I don't even know if I agree with that criticism. Because even though like Del Toro is like, yes, here's what I here's my intention or here's how I read my own movie, but I think he still like gives you enough of enough opportunities to interpret it a number of different other ways oh yeah especially for the the blurring of those worlds yeah i kind of like i mean i kind of like that kind of thesis i mean we've kind of been talking about this an unusual amount lately but we also talked about it in our episode about a girl walks home alone at night where Mm um anna louis amirpour was very resistant to have her movie labeled as any specific type of movie it sounds like to come from the opposite side of where del toro is coming where del toro is possibly being overly specific about like no i didn't mean this i meant this where Mm -hmm. she was like i'm not going to tell you what anything means and i don't want you to put any label on this movie even if it makes it sound better or whatever so i think that's interesting yeah I guess different directors make different choices. Yes. Um, we got to take a quick break, but then we'll come right back for more. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here... We have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, 
and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, my name is Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we have emerged back out of the labyrinth and <laughs> out of the womb. We walked up that long staircase. Yeah. Oh, I wish I lived down there. <laughs> anyway. The set design is so, yeah, I mean, it's so beautiful. Yeah. Where should we start? Where to be? I mean, a few things that I, I never really noticed or kind of um, was really impressed by watching this movie with our lens in mind. Something that jumped out to me, I'll just jump in here, uh, Women and Blood. Mm. which I never really picked up on because there are uh, blood of all genders spilled <laughs> in this movie. All people have blood. <laughs> Everyone has blood, and that's just a fact. Unless, of course, I did just watch every Twilight movie, so not always. <laughs> Some people drink it. <laughs> Anyways, uh, <laughs> but just the relationship between women and blood I thought was really interesting, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I, I like where most of it goes where I mean I think it's very rare that you see a difficult pregnancy great sorry pardon uh, my friend yeah <laughs> what did you say uh, a difficult pregnancy on screen which is weird because they're incredibly common mm-hmm. and kind of the complications that come with pregnancy even a metaf- a metaphor pregnancy like this very clearly is mm-hmm. I thought was was cool and that you see kind of the gorier I, I thought it was kind of cool to see that. I also felt like there were connections between, um, and again, sometimes I'm like, okay, a man writing the story of three women, of course, there's just going to be a little bit too much vaginal fixation. Uh, and I don't <laughs> think that this movie is really an exception to that, but it's such a good movie that I'm like, oh, well, but like, <laughs> even at the end, I felt like Del Toro, and please jump in if you're like, you're reading into this. It's not... A, vag- a vagina thing but even at the end where it's like ophelia's blood that it that activates the floor vagina 
and stuff like that where it felt and I, I was able to find a few readings of this that also referenced this so I'm like okay I don't feel completely off base mm. but just kind of the symbolism of blood in a woman's life where Ophelia like that never reaches menstruating age but mm. her you know blood at the end kind of activates this big um, change in the in the mythos of this world or like there's pregnancy blood we see there's you know injury blood we see there's just mm -hmm. I don't know women in blood it <laughs> had me thinking I see your point that didn't even occur to me and that almost feels like the type of like deep read like over analytical kind of thing whenever like it's I don't know. There are different movies where there will be like a mountain and people will be like, that's a phallus. That's a penis. That's a th Are you th suggesting this is not a floor vagina though? I don't know. I mean. The floor vagina, I, I didn't think about. I didn't consider that because I just saw it for a labyrinth. But I do think that is a valid point to make is the floor vagina. But uh, he also has very explicitly said that the tree is over. Are their ovaries? Or a uterus. Mm. Uh, it did that that tree did look like a uterus. I I'm gonna defend my floor <laughs> vagina and like whatever w women's blood thing. I mean I don't I and I don't even think this is like a misstep for this movie, but it was just mm -hmm. something that stood out to me in this. And even the like many of the hallways we see her walking through, uh, you know, there's a fallopian vibe going on to them. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and it and it makes sense where. There's, I mean, so much of the movie hinges on this pregnancy that is difficult and full of trials. And so... That is true. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the, the tunnel that she goes into to find the frog, that could be seen as vaginal. The opening to the uterus. The because oh, yeah. so much of it is, uh, so much of it, is it seems to be about discovering yourself and growing up and coming to maturity. So that... The floor vagina makes a lot of sense now of, you know, the blood going into the floor vagina being a period That's... and thus reaching maturity and finding yourself in the underworld. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I guess I'm not totally sold on the, on the period metaphor at the end. I just the uh, relating like women and blood to a pregnancy or just vaginal blood at all. You would really not see in a big movie like this very often, but you see it pretty frequently in this movie, mostly via um, Ophelia's mom. Yeah, I guess I didn't give it much thought prior to this. That's so. okay. Yeah, it was. Um, <laughs> I truly couldn't stop thinking about it in this one where I'm like, what? There, for me, it's a floor vagina <laughs> and a vagina hallway. One of the first things I wanted to bring up was that this is a hero's journey style narrative where a girl is the hero, um, mm -hmm. which is pretty unique. It's not often done. Female characters rarely get to be the hero in a hero's journey story. Another example off the top of my head is another, again, another character named Moana, but like Disney's Moana is one of only a few other like popular media hero's journey 
stories. I guess the new Star Wars movie, like the yeah, the I newest think that trilogy, there are, there are a fair amount, but just definitely they're becoming not more popular. Definitely not parody, and there it's only been in I think pretty recent years that filmmakers are yeah, like. I would, yeah, I would argue Hunger Games as well. Yeah. Like sure, even even the Wizard of Oz. I mean, they definitely exist and have existed, but just n- definitely not not to the same in a extent. Way parody, yeah, for sure. So I think that is cool. For sure. Um, and also, I I guess worth mentioning in the case of this movie that she doesn't survive the hero's journey, which is, I mean, it fits, again, it like fits the story perfectly, but it's very sad. Or, I mean, does, because she dies and gets reborn in underworld heaven, isn't that surviving? I, I mean, it definitely is in a way, um, but I mean, in terms of does she get to ever speak to Mercedes again? Does she mm-hmm. like stuff like that? Like, she, I feel like, yeah, it's it's very sure. sad. It's so sad. Oh, crying. I mean, she reached the goal that she was reaching for, but yes, still, uh, because I I do still like to think that it is ambiguous that like mm-hmm. that was just her in her head, and now she's happily living that fantasy in the afterlife. But was it real? I would like to be guess, but also, to be real. I don't know. I know. I, I want it to be real. Um, I also like if we're uh, just in the way that, I don't know, there, there's a number of, between our three main female characters, everyone has a different dynamic and a different type of relationship, which is really cool. Um, mm-hmm. And you kind of get these three very different types of women and they have very different responses to the like very oppressive force that's on top of them, right? Where you have Carmen who is, I mean, and, and Carmen is very fascinating to me and I, I love her so much because she is the most deferential to Mm -hmm. the patriarchy, but it, I feel like a lesser movie would make you feel like, and you know look what happened to her but but you know exactly why she is making the choices that she's making it's made very clear even when it sucks and it's upsetting and you can tell that she is not always thrilled to have to make them mm-hmm. but with her it's this i don't know like something i never really gave a lot of thought to but kind of like towing that line of like she's trying to you know, like there, there's a class thing at play for her as well, which I feel mm-hmm. like is symbolized through when Ophelia gets the dress all fucked up and Carmen's really upset because that symbolizes a higher class status. And it seems like the trade off for that is her having to put up with some of the mo- most horrifying sexism mm-hmm. of all time. Yeah. But it also, the movie doesn't, I don't know. I mean, she does die, right? So, but I, but I did feel like the movie didn't think less of her for making those choices, which made me, yeah, I really love her. And even though, you know, it's like, she's not the like rebel of the story, but her narrative is no less important or valuable. And and that is, I think, really beautiful. We've talked about this from time to time on the podcast about how women not to the same extent in contemporary times, but definitely in decades past and centuries past and millennia past where women have been at such a major disadvantage 
in life where they basically have to make huge sacrifices to survive and it felt to yeah. me like she They're was a widow authentic. her fa- her husband her husband, her husband. <laughs> died do they say he died in the war? I think so. So he probably he died in the in the you know Spanish Civil he War. He turns out to have a great beard. <laughs> yeah. I always forget yes. what he looks like at the end. I was like, whoa, cool beard. Yeah, he's Dad. more or less Santa Claus. Yep. And so he died. What I'm guessing was quite a while ago. Her mother had to like take over his business as a tailor in uh, like uh, the shop. Mm-hmm. It was wartime. She was struggling. And then this distinguished military man comes along and probably like, I don't know the circumstances of their marriage, but she probably just saw him as like, well, he can provide for me and my daughter. Right. So I will marry him because what are my choices? Which I feel like is like illustrated really clearly in that scene where... Ophelia doesn't understand why her mother felt that she had to get married again. Yeah. And her mom says, I was alone too long. And then it's, it's so sad because Ophelia's like, you weren't alone. I was right there. But just there's, there's a level that Ophelia doesn't yet understand of right. like what it takes to survive under, I mean, almost every kind of oppression you can imagine. For sure. Yeah. So this was like, a choice of survival she had to make uh, yeah. by marrying Vidal. And then and then he turns out to be a horrible, abusive piece of shit. That is unfortunately the case all too often. Mm-hmm. But yeah, again, it's like, what choice did she have if she was going to provide for herself and her daughter? So um, yeah, I, I thought that was an interesting exploration. I wonder if that could have been dived into just a little bit more i don't know if there was necessarily space or need for it but i kind of she was the character the female character to me that felt if if anyone could have gotten a little bit more development it could have been ophelia's mom Mm -hmm. but um yeah i still i think it was still interesting the way that her kind of circumstances were presented to us i think she also plays she's kind of used as the perfect example of how all women at that time were just like, you're just shoved down to nothing. Like you're just constantly in shit after shit after shit. And there's no mm-hmm. easy way out. Yeah. And so she kind of, I think, unfortunately has to die to prove that point. Being like, nope, you're just not going to yeah. get anything. And then we're just going to kill you. And that's that. Yeah. I've, I was feeling that way on this view as well, where it's like they're whatever they're these three women and girls are representing kind of like three different ways to approach this oppressive force and what are the outcomes where she's very deferential to it and i feel like like you're just saying aristotle like the movie doesn't want you to really take away like well you should just be passive to the worst person in the entire world and you'll you'll get out just fine mm-hmm. where and and i think it's like really telling that i don't know i mean i always am like does ophelia have to die um but that mercedes is the sole character to kind of get out um and be able to continue on in this version of the world mm-hmm. and how it's like someone who is from a lower class and is you know expected to be deferential to the same person but finds a way to navigate around that and kind of rebel and push anyways and to have that character be the one who survives and goes on you know it's like the metaphor isn't 
a softball. It's like, I get it, but I like that. <laughs> yeah. Yet there's still, again, I'm going to keep referencing the same. Ex- there's a book that I have. It's a great book. Yeah. What is it? I love it. It's called The Devil's Backbone of Pan's Labyrinth Studies in the Horror Film. And they're about these two specific mm-hmm. films. The Quest for Meaning in Pan's Labyrinth by Romana Cortiz. Cortiz, I don't know. Is the, the one that's a little bit more critical. And she mm-hmm. does also point out that even this happy, sad ending is still a huge sugar coating of the situation because Franco continued to rule for years after. To like 1975? Yeah, so yeah. like mm-hmm. there isn't, even in that little bit of hope, that like there is no happy ending for them. It's mm-hmm. fucked. And that gets mentioned too, where I think it's Mercedes talking to her brother or different rebels are talking to each other and they'll say like even if we can like kill Vidal they're just gonna send another one and if we kill him they're gonna send another one so yeah it's just like in reality like Mercedes survives to the end of this movie but like but who knows what happens there's no guarantee that in like a year she might not have been killed by the fascist regime yes yeah so yeah I was I was kind of like I I I like that they at least reference that but like I I also see her criticism that that kind of is like we I mean in any time like one character represents I mean I think that that's the downside of having like mr patriarchy as your villain of like well once you've killed mr fascism uh mr fascism hyphen patriarchy (laughs) joy can spread across the land again when of course it's not like never one person Mm -mm. and yeah yet he's still such you're saying earlier he's like a perfect villain because he's so brutal and evil and there's no way to sympathize with him really but you also understand why I mean, you don't understand, like, not, you know, sympathetically, but mm-hmm. he is just a disgusting product of the time with major daddy issues. <laughs> oh, my yes. gosh. I can't wait to talk about his daddy issues. I mean, the daddy issues in this movie are running rampant. <laughs> <laughs> There's an exchange I really like between Vidal and the doctor character who the doctor is tending to one of the rebels that the the fash the fashy guys have captured mm-hmm. they're torturing him to get him to talk and um the doctor comes in to tend to him after he's been tortured and the rebel guy is like please kill me and so the doctor complies as like yes this is like we have to make sure you can't they don't get any more information out of you mm-hmm. and then Vidal comes in and he's like you disobeyed me why did you do that why didn't you just obey me and um, the doctor is like well to obey someone without question is something that only someone like you can do and not mm-hmm. me which is like <laughs> what fascism is is you know just like obeying without question and then that ties back in the end in a, in a really cool thematic way where the fawn is like, okay, Ophelia, I need you to just bring your brother. Don't ask questions. And then when he's like, we need to, to like spill his blood for this whole thing to work. Yeah. You can't like, don't question it. And she's just like, no, like I'm not some like patsy. I'm not some, or not it's not the right word, but I'm not some just like follower who's not. I wish she had said that though. <laughs> Like a newsie. I'm not a fucking sheep. <laughs> not a fucking patsy. <laughs> and that's rewarded because she's like, well, then she, you know, she sacrifices herself and, and, you know, I don't know. 
the moral of the story is uh, just don't follow orders without questioning them because then you become a fascist. The end. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. it's like uh, Ophelia. I don't know, Aristotle. I'm really because you you are so much more entrenched in the discourse around this movie than than we are. Ophelia, I I. It makes me sad that Ophelia dies, but I it does. I mean, if we're going with the read where she dies, mm-hmm. I think that that makes like a kind of interesting, complex point where like you have one character who defers to the oppressive force and it kills them. You have one character who pushes against the oppressive force and survives for now. And then you have Ophelia who pushes against the oppressive force and loses. And just i don't know seeing all those different kind like it doesn't necessarily mean that there's one way to go against an oppressive force that's going to be a win it just right. means that you know you have to do it it shows the weight of the oppression of like this is such a massive yeah. massive front of evil yeah. that it's just hard to get around but another a, a weird thing is the fun gaslit ophelia right oh for sure cuz that's what <laughs> That's that's the the weird that thing that I still kind of have some trouble understanding why I suppose like was the eating of the grapes saying you'll never see me again but then coming back for a second chance part of the test or was mm. is that just like mm. is all of this one long gaslight and the other problem in this story really as the number one as the number one self proclaimed Guillermo fan I also have to bring up a lot of <laughs> the, the hiccups but. The odd thing in this story is that it's about Princess Moana running away from a patriarchy into a human, evil, evil, like very oppressive patriarchy mm-hmm. to want to return back to the original patriarchy. So yeah. there's yeah. never really a freedom that she gets. There's a happier ending, but it's mm. she still goes from patriarchy to patriarchy. Right. It makes you wonder why she ran away from the underworld in the first place. Like I'd imagine it was out of curiosity. Right. right. But that is I hadn't I hadn't even considered it from that angle. I'm like, yeah, she is like it is another d- daddy daddy's own. Yeah. But a nicer daddy this time. <laughs> yeah, well, I was like, is it like I mean, it's not like The Little Mermaid where she's like, I fell in love with a man from above, so I have to go up there. I have to see a plot witch and then, yeah. you know, get some legs and then become a human. It's nothing like, yeah, we, I guess we don't know why she ran away. Or like it, that part of the story doesn't apply to her. That I was kind of struggling with that too, where I'm like, where she gets to the labyrinth and then the fawn is like, you're the main character in the story, but then it's like, well, then why doesn't she know about anything that happens to the character before? Because she loses her memory as, sh- as soon right. as she comes. So she forgets why the first patriarchy is bad. So the ending of the movie is she's going to go back and then find out soon. Because I, mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, patriarchy bad, but they never also explicitly right. say bad. So I like what what. Truly, I just imagine like the kind of situation of like, I want to live amongst the humans to see what it's like. But then I want to yeah. be where the people are. Exactly. And uh, <laughs> the other kind of she's a child, so you can't falter for it. But the other odd thing about this situation is that the world is so oppressive, she would rather leave. You know what I mean? They kind of feels mm-hmm. like a 
in the current situation, it feels a little bit like I hate both of the candidates, so I'm not going to vote. Ooh, so I'm just going to... Like, I'm out of here. I'm I'm moving to Canada. Moving to... She's literally moving to she's Canada. She's moving to Canada. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And I'm like, ah, she's a child, so of course that that's the option we'd all take. At least she can't vote. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. It's always, I mean, and I guess the other, the other way that I saw to read that happening was like, whatever, if you're going from like, she pushed against the oppressive force, it lost her her life, but then it kind of also won her this immortality that's implied of like almost like a martyry, martyr for the cause kind of mm. immortality. So even though she's physically dead, maybe, mm. I don't know, it's like her, her death meant something in the human world and it impacted people in the human world which is i mean yeah i don't know that's the positive spin i can see on that but it also could be seen as moving to canada i had not considered the martyr i saw i saw it more as a like another victim of the franco regime but the the martyrdom of it is oh my that changes everything. I hope, hopefully, I'm like, you would hope, right, that like Mercedes survives and hopefully she survives long enough to tell the other rebels about this like little girl who wouldn't listen to the captain and like had this big imagination and lost her whole family and gave her life up because she wouldn't capitulate or whatever. Mm-hmm. I hope, I mean, I hope because otherwise it's like, oh God, <laughs> life is so meaningless. Uh, <laughs> And on that note, let's take a quick break (laughs) and then come back for more discussion. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready that, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. And we're back. Just really quick stuff. I mean, this was kind of like, I guess, the 101 of why Ophelia is such a cool character. But uh, just so it's all said. Yeah. Put it out there. She's she's a little rebellious kid. She doesn't wear fancy dresses that look like exactly like the Alice in Wonderland dress because I'm sure a reason uh, <laughs> when you tell her to. I like that she has this really rebellious spirit, but it doesn't like it doesn't mean that she's a bad kid I feel like a lot Mm -hmm. of times you see that in movies where it's like you just need to learn to be good where she knows that her mom is wrong she doesn't understand why her mom is making the decision or wrong by her view right yeah she doesn't understand why her mom is making the decisions that she's making but it doesn't destroy their relationship it definitely affects it but it they still have this like strong love and respect for each other that doesn't come apart even though they are being true to what they think is right in very different ways mm-hmm. which is something you don't usually get in a story like this where it's like I mean I I guess I'm just in this headspace because we are talking about <laughs> the little mermaid a lot <laughs> but like Ariel disobeys her dad and he's like see ya you mm-hmm. suck you're bad and I feel like that happens in stories with young rebellious protagonists and a lot their parents are like no i don't see it your way i was never a child <laughs> i'm gonna destroy your room full of your little weird your labyrinth yeah. your... <laughs> but in this i like that there are so many shades of gray to the mother-daughter relationship even though you don't see them together that that much but mm-hmm. even that moment where i don't know my favorite moment they have together on this watch is like when she's in the bathtub and she's just disobeyed for the five millionth time mm-hmm. and her mom comes in and is like well we're very disappointed and you were really frustrated and the captain is more disappointed than me see ya and i was like okay that's like a really lovely oh, and then ophelia like gives this little smirk like haha yeah, i'm glad does. i disappointed him because i hate him she knew and and i and also that's like indicating to her that her mom is not actually that disappointed in her and is mm-hmm. just like which is lovely i like i like that yeah i also like the relationship dynamics between the three of them the three the three main female protagonists mm-hmm. being the mom mercedes and ophelia because you have the mom who's like struggling and trying to do the best for her mother i mean for her daughter but then ophelia also goes to mercedes i have to say like uh with um <laughs> I guess the things that she can't talk about with her mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I appreciate that being there in the movie because that I feel like that never 
that doesn't come up often with a child talking to an adult about kind of grown-up things, I guess, or things like, this is how I feel. Because they have to talk, they're the only two that can talk to each other really about like, I'm in this secret rebellion. And it's like, well, I met a fawn. Mm-hmm. Though, at a lot of points too, Mercedes listens, but is also kind of like, magic isn't real. Right. Yeah. But I think that's also just from coming from being hardened from... Living in a fascist regime, perhaps. <laughs> what I like that Mercedes does that uh, Ophelia's mom doesn't is that, yeah, like it is definitely clear from the beginning that Mercedes is like, okay, this is like a kid thing and it's an imagination thing. But she doesn't try to really take that from Ophelia because it seems like, I mean, Mercedes especially is so entrenched in like some really difficult shit and mm-hmm. it seems like she sees this kid and she's like oh my gosh this kid has such a wild imagination and has so much going on in their inner life that at least doesn't it's a projection of living in a fascist regime but it's at least fun and, and it's hers and so she doesn't try to be like this is fake I think she's just like okay don't like don't take things too far I don't know right. yeah and she, then she also I, says like she feels like a cool aunt for right, a right? to talk to <laughs> Especially because she says, like, no, I don't believe in those things now, but I did when I was your age. You know, I did when I was a kid. So it's like Polar she's letting expression. Ophelia having it and, like, t- not telling her not to believe in those things. Whereas her mom is like, these are, you just, Santa you need to stop real. reading so many fairy tales. <laughs> like, there is no magic. And so, like, her mom is sort of forcing her own little bit of oppression on Ophelia. Whereas Mercedes is like, you, like, yeah, be- like believe in whatever you want to believe in if it helps you cope with these awful times. And going off of that, I mean, it's like, Aristotle, you were saying earlier that the Fawn is like an asshole, for sure. <laughs> like, he's definitely gaslighting and confusing her constantly. And like, the goal of what he actually wants is never clear. And if if that is kind of like her projection of the world she's around where like it's this inner labyrinth that she has to navigate that's full of male figures that she's kind of afraid of that are giving her that's like i don't know just like providing endless confusion and (laughs) a lack of clarity i'm like oh maybe that is what it is i am always i guess just using this lens going in it I guess I never really thought very hard about how like the mythical creature she encounters, the fairies are coded female or they, they use she pronoun, but, but you don't really know. Yeah. You don't, I mean, other than their protectors, but like you don't really know much about them, but like the two characters you get to know in the labyrinth are two kind of deceptive. And then in the, in the second villain, what do we, what do we, the pale man's yeah. case um, is like terrifying. Uh-huh. A little more on the nose too, but that, that also I think blends nicely in with, it's like, these are things are, that she's projecting. The pale man is Vidal mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because I, I hadn't realized how close those scenes were, but the big dinner scene yeah. is almost right before the pale man scene. And they are exactly mirrored. Right. So the pale man's cave that is a little more Catholic churchy. Yeah. Which Guillermo has said it's supposed to represent the Catholic church. Yes. Yeah, that scene is a uh, criticism. 
of that institution. Right. I don't know if I even made that connection. Every time I watch this movie, I'm just like so dazzled by <laughs> like the visuals and I'm I'm always like, oh, right. There's also like symbolism <laughs> and stuff that I keep forgetting yeah. to pay attention to. I watched it twice for this and both times by the end I was like fuck I, I wasn't even like thinking of like research I was just watching the shit right I know I I'm watched like, it once for fun because I knew I wasn't going to be able to focus because it's so good and I haven't seen it in years and then the second time for analysis and I still didn't pick up everything <laughs> it's just so rich but yeah it's like if it's I mean has has del Toro said explicitly that the creatures she comes across in the labyrinth are just are are, are her interpretation of what's going on in front of her. I don't think he said that though. I do like that, but he did say that like the pale man is a like reflection is of Vidal in a like as above, so below type of. Mm-hmm. Got it. Can we talk about Mercedes? Yeah. So one of the bigger cathartic moments or storylines for me was with her, where basically what happens is that. Vidal underestimates her because she is a woman because there's that scene where he's about to interrogate and torture her after he's figured out that she's working with the rebellion and he sends like the his like second in command guy away Mm -hmm. and the guy's like are you sure like don't you want me to be here and he's like for god's sake she's just a woman you know like what what could possibly happen she's not going to do anything to me right and that that's like what kills him exactly yes yeah. <laughs> and, he, and he's like you found my weakness it's pride ha 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 and then two seconds later she stabs him in the back she, she jokers him i forgot that she <laughs> yeah. jokers him i was like oh no <laughs> don't joker him it also looks like she stabs him in the heart and i'm like how did he mm-hmm. not die from that wound i don't know he's a super super villain she yeah i know she... there's certain moments where i, I i'm like i He's, he gets injured so many times. He's like Rasputin grade, like number of attempts made on his life before he finally dies. Yeah. But so, yeah, she's basically just like, it's because I'm a woman that you never suspected me. Like, this is how I got away with it. I was invisible to you. And then she cuts up his face, tells him, you won't be the first pig I gutted. And we're just like, woo go I didn't remember that part of the movie I guess I had just kind of forgotten that since the last time I watched it and maybe it's a little just like I don't know just like kind of surface level like woo feminism (laughs) go but it worked on me I was like hell yeah Mercedes the best yeah but then it's the the thing that's sad about it is that she she does I mean I'm glad that she I mean of any character in the whole movie she well, yeah, she like her getting the killing blow on him and that second scene where he's mm. like, you know, trying to do the honorable soldier thing and be like, tell my Greg like <laughs> what time it was when I died. And she's like, Greg won't even know your name was your Greg. Name. And then she kills him. <laughs> uh, and like that is like so what made me sad on the second watch for this recording was she says explicitly like motherfucker don't touch the girl mm-hmm. but then he uh he does he kill he kills her yeah Ugh. but then he's killed for that but it's like he still kills her i know he didn't i just am like why didn't that fascist learn something 
Because they don't have the capacity to learn in many cases. And I like that they give, um, that Del Toro gives Mercedes an inner life as well. Because I feel like sometimes with like rebel characters, all you know about them is like they are fighting for the right thing. And you don't, and I mean, honestly, like Mercedes being a, a member of the underclass on top of being underestimated as a woman on top of having a, a huge heart and sense of direction is enough but I like that we also see that she is doing this for her family and she's like I, I like that you kind of get to know some people in in her world as well because I mm -hmm. always kind of forget that you meet her brother and you get to like get some insight into why she does what she does um and yeah. that they're kind of working together and I just I like that I like that you get that background for her mm -hmm. I think in the Watching it, that scene is awesome, but in also true horror fashion, I find myself asking, why didn't you kill him then? Like, you had your chance. You could have killed the villain right then and there. Why did you just like, kill Especially him? in reference to gutting a pig, which you get more grotesque with it, you would slice the throat open, thus killing mm. the pig, killing the man. So I was like, well, you had it right. right there. And they're going to try to kill her either way. Yes. So she might as well just finish the job. It, but yeah. I think it also, though, speaks to the like huge gap in capacity for violence, whereas he would have no trouble doing that. But she is like, you know, I'm not an evil person like you are. Like, I mm -hmm. wouldn't cut someone's throat like that. Like, yeah, she's probably like, I wouldn't stoop to murder maybe but it's just like when he yeah, brutally kills an entire family for nothing right it's like sometimes like considering the circumstances i don't know slit his throat like he was incapacitated he was injured enough that she probably could have done it oh yeah and then you get into a whole the whole like spiral of then that changes the movie then you got to write it differently so like how would ophelia have survived or how you know how would this change and i you know i, I just want to see what does that look like we need some alternate endings. Speaking of spiral, the <laughs> Moana spiral from Disney's Moana is also on the fawn's head. Mm. There's like all this spiral imagery across both movies. There's a conspiracy here. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I was like, it kind of like Kate was about to be like, and that is the work of the Illuminati. <laughs> and for the next 45 minutes, <laughs> I would like to take you. <laughs> Starting with Jay-Z and Beyonce at the top. Let's work our way <laughs> oh down the Illuminati pyramid. So they're obviously in control of the app. Um, yeah, a lot of, I mean, there's honestly, this movie is so dense that there were some images and references where I'm like, I know that this probably means something, but, but there's only so much time. Um, <laughs> this was the first viewing of this movie that I saw the captain's constant razor blading of his face to have some significance of like mm. he he has this obsession with control and order but also and and you know is down to use violence to achieve kind of arbitrary order of of his choosing so i was like okay i get mm. it that time del toro i see you i see you <laughs> i used to just think this guy grows a beard really fast but i was wrong <laughs> Um, and I was I, just like, what is, what could that mean? He beards fast. <laughs> I love the moment where like he holds the blade to the mirror and cuts his own throat because like, yeah, <laughs> I feel like that's the moment where you've already seen him do all these obscene acts of violence. Yeah. But that's when you're like, oh, he like, he loves this. Like he 
This is what mm-hmm. he wants. wants, wants. Yeah. He's just so obsessed with death and dying and like wanting to go out in a blaze of glory. And it's there and it's subtle, but I would I do want to know more about the daddy issues. Yeah, okay. So let's talk about this. So this sort of I found this really interesting because I mean, Jamie, we've also talked a lot about how like so many movies just kind of boil down to like a father-son relationship or that's mm-hmm. always some undertone or overtone in a lot of movies. So here I appreciate that we get an exploration of how that kind of obsessiveness with like my father and my son can be really toxic and that it can stem from a really kind of morbid place that has nothing to do with familial love and it has everything to do with just like just like societal roles and expectations and all this yeah yeah so Vidal is obsessed with his father we come to learn which we learn because he keeps his broken watch with him. And then we find out the backstory of this watch where his father died heroically in battle. And as he was dying, he like smashed the face of the watch so that his son would know the exact time he died, because that's how a brave man dies, according to this well, guy. I was like, this is my first time hearing this, but I'll, I'll go with it. That's also such an... A, an odd thing for you to want your kid to like I want him to know the time not that I loved him or that I can, but the time when it right. seems like this time has actually been very traumatizing for him <laughs> to know all this time right and here's something I don't get so maybe you can help me understand this but so we find out this backstory and then the guy at dinner is like Vidal is that true and he's like no that's nonsense my father didn't even own a watch even though we've seen said watch with the smashed face of it many times because he's constantly looking at it and like fiddling with it so I was confused as to why he would deny that same that that's kind of why it made it so curious to me because he's so obviously obsessed with it but then why would he deny it yeah i i don't know if it it was more of his like pride or he's like i'm i don't have feelings i don't keep my daddy's broken watch with me and i don't put it under my pillow when i sleep blah 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 like i kind of (laughs) i it was easiest for me to read that as he was lying because otherwise it does kind of muddle that yeah but yeah i was a little confused about that as well but why would he lie I think it it has to do somewhat with a like having to live under that shadow because that that officer was just like your father was such an incredible soldier, yeah, undertone that you'll never be able to live up to, Uh, Mm. and so he's like fuck him, I don't. That's you know (laughs) he didn't have a watch, fuck him. But yeah, uh, one of the other like visual things that Guillermo has noted that I don't think I ever would have understood otherwise was that uh, Vidal the entire movie lives alone in what I think is the mill or whatever that giant room is. Mm-hmm. Mm. But that giant mill symbolizes a giant broken clock because the background is all cogs and machines that are not moving. So he is so obsessed. He's literally, you know, cocooned himself inside of a broken clock. That's all he lives for is smashing that clock and to die. Yes. I read that too. Yeah. That I was like, well, I guess I have to watch the movie again. Fine. <laughs> um, what I found funny about this whole watch thing is that it basically the same exact thing happens in Pulp Fiction when Christopher Walken comes in and he's like, hey, Bruce Willis's character as a kid, your daddy kept this watch up his butthole for two years so that I could then give it to you. And it's like, 
Okay. Yeah, like, cool, cool, cool. No one I don't know this, what this is. But, like, just a little bit more about this, like, kind of father-son obsession thing where then we learn before the baby is, before baby Greg is born, they don't know the sex of the baby, but he just keeps assuming it's a boy, you know, biologically male. I'm like annoyed that he was right about that, but <laughs> it is a Greg. Everyone, everyone. I mean, so does um, Carmen, and uh, Oph- Ophelia also takes this at face value as well. So I, yeah, it, it would be interesting if they turned out to not be right. But um, I guess it it serves the story that it is like a male baby because then he can continue to be obsessed with it. And it does make that moment at the end with. Uh, like you mentioned, Jamie, where Mercedes is like, your son isn't even going to know your name. Bang, you're dead. Greg Sr. Bye, Greg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you would you would think best case scenario, and again, because uh, we're talking about such a violent period of time, we don't know. But ideally, uh, baby Greg would be brought up by, by rebels and would be kind of, right. you know, that makes that's another way in which Ophelia's sacrifice would not have been in vain that she is inadvertently getting you know her her little brother uh, a better life um mm-hmm. at least spiritually and probably in every way than he would have had if he had stayed with the captain yes i had a quick thing i wanted to address here that um that I mean, it's it's kind of service, but I just wanted to, I guess, just even reference it because it seems like Del Toro is kind of unambiguously referencing Alice in Wonderland a few different times in this movie, mm-hmm. um, like most prominently with the literal dress, which mm. she isn't, you know, very fond of, but there it is, of this story that is usually told and written by men that features a young girl going into a tunnel and (laughs) learning a a finger, going into a floor (laughs) vagina, learning a thing or two about a thing or two, and then uh, coming out on the other side in one way. So I just wanted to reference um, the other movies, uh, some of which we've covered that take this same tack. So obviously Mm -hmm. it seems like the, at least the popular genesis of it is Alice in Wonderland where mm-hmm. a young girl falls into a floor vagina and <laughs> uh, meets a bunch of men that don't like her. And <laughs> and also, uh, in that case, a, a, a mean queen. And then, you know, she mm. comes out. We've covered Coraline. Yes. That uh, is another another uh, vagina that pops up, swallows her <laughs> up. She learns a lot about her, her role in the world and her feelings about her parents. She's po- popped out of the vagina, go back in the world. <laughs> a rebirth. This also yeah. happens in Spirited Away, a movie I have not seen in, in many years, so I can't speak mm. to the specifics of it, but it's uh, much the same. Uh, young girl tumbles into uh, a natural vagina, pops out, changed, um, mm-hmm. and then Pan's Labyrinth, where it, this is, this is the, uh, the floor vagina approach, where mm-hmm. she goes down a, a series of tunnels, meets a series of foes, and then, I mean, I think the most tragic example where she doesn't survive in the traditional sense, but her memory survives and she kind of graduates into, she's not even going to move out of the floor vagina. She's just going to live there. Yeah, um, goes deeper down into it. I also <laughs> wanted to uh, back up my my little uh, journey to womanhood metaphor, not because, mm. not just because there is such a huge precedent for it sure. in uh, fiction from male auteurs that 
are generally very, very loved. So again, I'm not like dumping on it, but it is a thing. I did a little bit of research on like the fawn and pan. Mm-hmm. The fawn and, pa- and pa- the char- like the mythological f- creature of pan traditionally is like a very sexual character. Yes. So if we're reading that you know pan is presenting himself in his little goat legs to (laughs) to ophelia saying a series of things to her that are very confusing giving her a bunch of what seems to her like random goals that she doesn't fully understand i feel like that does lend itself to the read of like she is on this journey towards figuring out what womanhood is to her because literally the sex god shows up and she's like i don't know what this guy's talking about because she's 10 Mm-hmm. so that's yeah. my little rant on girls <laughs> in holes we love to toss a girl into a hole in popular culture <laughs> we just love it i was worried about that too because it's called pan's labyrinth in the english translation of the title but not in the spanish one it just translates to the labyrinth of the fawn or the fawn's labyrinth but i guess because Pan was a more recognizable thing than a fawn, which for me, that wasn't true. I was like, I don't know what pan I had to. It like, certainly misled some of us. Right. right. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's not Peter Pan. So what the hell? So, um, yeah. So what's the point? I Unclear. But uh, Del Toro has said that even though this English translation of the title identifies the fawn as pan, that the fawn is not pan in the movie and has said quote if he was pan the girl would be in deep shit um (laughs) and has very clearly stated that it is not pan but nonetheless the fawn is also closely the fawn is still uh, deceptive and like there's some sex stuff with the fawn (laughs) yeah and then i but then i also found aristotle i would love your take on this if you look at the i mean aside from the fact that the poster is not about Peter Pan. Um, <laughs> every poster I was able to find for this movie is a gaping vagina. And there's just no way around it. Yeah. <laughs> like the marketing of this movie was a lot of pussy. But oh, yeah. <laughs> I was able to find a quote from Del Toro that kind of pushes against that reading. I guess it just is really, this is a case study. And like, I mean, he's saying it's not there, but I, I can't stop seeing it where uh he was asked in an interview with filter mag the question was um so often in fairy tale analysis there's a tendency to read any story of a young girl as a psychosexual parable but this film specifically doesn't go that way thoughts and del toro says it doesn't at all i consciously avoided it not out of prudishness uh, but out of the same reason why i tried to avoid the myth of vampire vampirism in chronos blah 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 stuff about chronos in Pan's Labyrinth, I knew the psychosexual angle was really tired. It felt very 1980s for me, and I felt this was a movie about a girl who was on the threshold of making a choice where she could cease to be a girl, but it was not about sexual identity, which I don't even think pushes back against how I feel that much because it doesn't seem like a sexual identity thing as much as it is of like figuring out how you can survive as a woman in this world. I don't know. Yeah, because there's nothing inherently sexual in any of this. It's all very much about it. It does it, but that's also wild him to say because 
everything's a uterus in this movie. Like I, I have uh, brag. I have the Criterion Blu-ray. Wow, that oh, is literally that. a vagina, Aristotle. Yes, I did not even see <laughs> that until I until you brought it up. Now, I, I mean, I, I recognize the like. Uh, it's a beautiful artwork by Becky Cloonan. I want, I wanted the poster so bad. Of course, it sold out in seconds. But uh, it's a, it's similar as the the regular poster where it's kind of the tree, but it's also kind of the fawn's head. Mm-hmm. It all looks like a uterus, but that is she is coming out of a vagina. A yeah. like the you know it. the it's right there. It scrambles my brain. I don't think that there's anything wrong with this, but it is always weird to me when. A male filmmaker is like, it's not that. I'm like, but do you, are you looking at it? Like, <laughs> I'm looking at it. Like, it's just, I don't know. It is definitely an interpretation thing. But, and it also is a, a, a set design thing. But because mm-hmm. we know Del Toro is so involved in the process, it's kind of Very. not like, well, he just showed up and there were all these vaginas in the floor. Like, he, <laughs> I don't know. And I, I feel like this also kind of goes back to the, the essay that I, I mentioned initially, that he's trying to influence your view of it with what his intention is. But that doesn't mean that that's still not there, because he's still a man raised in a extremely patriarchal society. So that, of course, he has major blind spots that he just mm-hmm. can't see. I think, And we all kind of have that. Yeah. We all have major blind spots you just cannot see because you don't know that they're there. That's why I really appreciated this critical essay of him because, you know, yeah. Yeah. it does kind of make me appreciate him more while also yeah. recognizing, you know, not perfect. Sure. I love I love the hell out of this movie. There's and there is a vagina on every poster <laughs> and both of those things can be true. <laughs> well, I'm also disturbed at this trend of. It being, I mean, the suggestion that it is, is it, can there be a psychosexual interpretation of this movie about a 10-year-old girl? Like, why is that even entering the conversation for, like, the film critics and, and, like, the filmmakers who are like, yeah, let me put all this vagina imagery into a movie about a 10-year-old? Like, I don't, I hate it. I agree, but I also feel like it's a valid question to ask because it does happen. It is the right. It's it, yeah. It's not so much the the questioning of it, but it's more like why is this imagery that we yeah. that we would see in a movie about a ten year old girl who is like about to start to come of age kind of thing? You know, like it just it feels weird it, it's uncomfortable it sucks that it even has to enter the conversation yes for that's sure. that's what i mean i feel like i would appreciate it more if he was more direct and was like yes it's about becoming a woman she's never sexualized we don't you know sex is never brought up but people you know people grow up it has to happen right yeah and i think yeah. i would appreciate that way more than like no no no, no that's not it it seems like a little yeah the, this answer it i had to read it like a, a few different times because i was like I feel like that is almost that conversation is telling because it's conflating coming of age with sex, which is, you know, a part of coming of age is navigating your feelings around sex, but it's not the only thing that happens right. when you come of age. So much happens. Right. The idea that like you're reducing coming of age to like 
when losing your virginity, you get your period or like having sex for the first time it's and it's also that's also like obviously a very like cis normative thing where it's like well you're a you know you're a woman as soon as you get your period and it's like no no i went back to school the next day and i didn't know what cunnilingus was for five years still so i would say (laughs) that so little of my life had changed other than wait i feel like we've talked about this i just was like i think i shit myself my mom's like you didn't and i was like all right moving on yeah i guess i mean if there is going to be so much vagina and uterus imagery and like i I would rather there be injury vaginal blood like for a movie that doesn't really deal in sex very much i feel like it's disingenuous to imply like i mean on, on his end of like it doesn't have a lot to do with sex but it does have a lot to do with like women's bodies or like cis women in a in a way that isn't exploitative but it is very present i don't know it's confusing to talk about right and where i come down on the whole thing is like if you're gonna throw a bunch of all this imagery into your movie then make the protagonist an adult woman and not a 10 year old girl i guess and then also like (laughs) what does a cis man know about a maturing female body and why is there that obsession with it call bo burnham up let's get bo burnham on the horn (laughs) um and as much as i love eighth grade and as much as i love pan's labyrinth it it is it really makes you question like why this is such a prevalent or really like why it is such a prevalent storytelling like why is it such a pervasive cultural story for a man to write a story about a little girl falling into a vagina and learning something (laughs) and why why is it always a cis man telling that story i just i mean again i love this movie to death but it's like worth bringing up and i feel like we had not as in-depth, but like a similar-ish conversation in Coraline of like, why is Neil Gaiman just like tossing this little girl into a vagina to learn a lesson? Why is it? <laughs> why? It just it just happens a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the the moral of the story is I, I would appreciate more coming of age stories for little girls and more heroes journey narratives about yeah. girls and women that are actually written and made by women. But that said, this movie fucking rocks. It does. And I wouldn't no. change a thing. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's complicated, okay? This movie is the greatest. And it's also weird, but that's like, that's the beauty. That's, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> King of the weirdos. <sighs> Truly, yeah. He's, man. I also realized like halfway through that we, we, we acknowledged the shirt that I'm wearing, but didn't specifically say... And it's a shirt that you got me that says directed by Guillermo del Toro. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Send us a picture of yourself wearing it, if you would, Aristotle, and then we'll post it on our Instagram. Will do. Will do. Do you have a favorite del Toro movie at present slash has it ever changed? I do. And it was going to be something, I don't know if we're wrapping now, because I was going to recommend um, Pan's Labyrinth, objectively good film, Oscar winning, beautiful, gorgeous movie. The Devil's Backbone is his other, I believe he has three movies in Spanish, mm-hmm. objectively his best movies. Uh, the other ones are great and fun, Ooh. but those are like truly the best, most meaningful, I guess, except for Kronos. Kronos is good, but it's a little more cool than meaningful. But <laughs> Devil's Backbone, my favorite movie. I have a tattoo right here on my arm of, once again, 
the oh shit, it's gone. But the Criterion Collection cover, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the other side of little boys in a boys' home during the Spanish War. Pans is post. This is during. And I read that Del Toro says that Pan's Labyrinth is the sort of like spiritual or thematic sequel to The Devil's Backbone, even though they're not necessarily like narratively sequels. They're like kind of spiritually companion films. Yeah. In the sense that they both take place during the Spanish War, but there's also, Mm -hmm. I like to think that he has created a universe that he hasn't touched since Mm. of, you know, a very dark, sad grim world with a lighter side of the things that we consider dark like you know the the beautiful note always of pan's labyrinth is like there's all these scary things happening in the fantasy world but none of them are as dark or as horrifying as what's happening in our world that actually Mm -hmm. happened like none Mm -hmm. of it is as evil as that and it's kind of the same thing with devil's backbone where it's a ghost story but the ghost isn't the problem it's the men in the movie. Yeah. Uh, and it's a much smaller, more intimate movie. I I feel like that doesn't make sense, but when you if you see it, you, you get it. Yeah, I gotta watch it. That, unfortunately, I don't think it's streaming anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's almost never anywhere. That's why I had to buy the Blu-ray, huh. but it's worth it. Okay. And then Pacific Rim, which we've done before, too, and that's more mm-hmm. of like a big, dumb, fun movie. We're gonna yeah. do... We're... We're gonna get to Shape of Water at some point because I gotta oh. talk about the Doug Jones fish. <laughs> oh, jo- we didn't even talk about Doug Jones. <laughs> we didn't know. King Doug Jones. He learned Spanish for this movie. They didn't use his voice. He learned but how to he speak. Did it. Learn. They didn't. They didn't yeah. use his voice, but they did. Uh, he did learn Spanish for it, but it wasn't good enough, so they dubbed it over with a Spanish-speaking <laughs> actor's voice. Sorry, Doug. <laughs> but Doug Jones rocks. I found out that he. And it's too bad because this is a cultural image that has been taken by the alt-right, which I didn't learn until I was like, this is fun. And then everyone was like, not anymore. Mm. Um, But do you remember that uh, McDonald's mascot from the 80s that was called Mac Tonight? And it's just a mascot with a huge crescent moon for a head? Yes. That's Doug Jones. Wait. Oh. Wait. For McDonald's? Because I'm thinking of um, Jay, Jay Leno. Right or Conan, one of them also had a moon-headed uh, mascot. Maybe they were copying it, or maybe the uh. other way around. But yeah, Mac tonight was a I don't know before my time. But uh, <laughs> he was he was a guy with a big crescent moon, and it was about getting food at McDonald's oh, yes. late at night. I see it now. He's alt right now. The alt right. I don't even want to know what they've done with Mac tonight. But apparently, they took him. He's gone. But he's Doug Jones. Back in the day, that was an early Doug Jones gig. Guy with a big, he loves a big prosthetic. (laughs) He sure does. Well, (laughs) he can't, even with a huge ass moon head, he's like, I'll do it. (laughs) Jamie, would you agree Alfred Molina should have been in this movie? Yeah. He is part Spanish. He should. He is an actor of Spanish descent. Yeah. He he is bilingual. Like, I feel, but then I do feel like if he was in this movie, he would have been playing someone really terrible. And I'm almost glad he's not Mm. in it because I don't want to see him be a bad guy. I think he would have made a great Dr. Ferreira. Ooh, good call. Yeah, he would. He would have fit. He would have fit in this world too. I don't even know what I'm saying when I'm saying that, but he (laughs) he fits in like a fantasy movie. Yeah, and he fits in a period piece. Like in many ways, Pan's Labyrinth is a period piece. 
<laughs> yes, indeed. Oh, thanks for the excuse to go to Alfred Molina's Wikipedia today. <laughs> what was he doing this year? Well, maybe he was bit, maybe he was offered a role and turned it down. Instead, he might have been doing something like the Da Vinci Code. I hope that's not true. Oh, <laughs> that would be such a bummer if he was like, can't, no can do, Guillermo. I got a sweet game in the Da Vinci Code. I don't know. Oh, this movie is so goddamn good. <laughs> yeah. It's also worth it, it's not even worth noting. You just want to throw it out there that Federico Lupi, who plays the king father character, mm-hmm. is also in The Devil's Backbone and in Kronos. He's another okay. of Guillermo's oh, cool. frequenters until he passed. Well, and also um the the woman who plays Mercedes is I recognized her from Itu Mama Tambien. Mm. Yes. Yes, she is. Which I think is the only other movie I've seen her in. Wait, let me make more great connections. Name. Guillermo, Alfonso Quiron, uh, Inyaritu, three best friends. Alfonso Quiron helped produce this movie. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize that until uh, researching for this. I didn't know he was involved in it. And that there was also, I read on the scholarly journal wikipedia.org that there was like some disagreement about whether or that Inaratu said that he viewed Pan's Labyrinth as a truly Catholic film and then Del Toro was like no no (laughs) (laughs) which it seems like it's kind of his thing he's like that read is is no is a no for me which is so hard to like I don't understand how he can say that when he's so obsessed with Catholic imagery like that's just so his jam and he was raised Catholic and he kind of hates it I guess but you can't ignore that it's there. Well, that's what I kind of, yeah, sometimes I've, I mean, and also I have, I'm like, I am, I'm like, I guess if I were, if I were making something on such a large scale, I bet I would have some control issues with it as well of like, no, that wasn't what I was saying. I was saying this, <laughs> but, but even so it's like when you're able to make something on such a big scale, it's like, it's cool that people can see different stuff in it and like see parts of them. I don't know. And mm-hmm. also just like, it's, I, to be definitively like it's not about Catholic, like I guess that almost like implies that you have more control over your, what, what you're putting out subconsciously than you actually do. I don't know. Hmm. Wow, art <laughs> is complicated. What is art. <laughs> <laughs> Does anyone have any final thoughts about the film? It needs to make more Spanish-speaking movies. Yeah, it hasn't done so in a long time. Yeah, what was the last one? It was Pans, and then he went to do more Hellboys, and then Pacific Rim, Shape of Water, Crimson Peak. Oh, I always forget that was him. And then didn't he burn a couple years doing, like, almost doing Hobbit and then not doing Hobbit? Yes. Yeah. Well, this movie does pass the Bechdel test between Ophelia and her mother, Carmen, between Ophelia and Mercedes. Um, As far as our nipple scale... Zero to five nipples based on an examination through an intersectional feminist lens. This one is tricky for me. Hard. Hard. Because on one hand, you have this, like, again, a hero's journey narrative that is led by a woman, three women, really. I mean, especially, and then two women or two female characters emerge as, like, the most heroic characters of the film between Ophelia and Mercedes. And then I like that it's a fairy tale narrative 
that is about a female character, but it is not like a princess having to get rescued and falling in love with a prince. Because like, I think Disney uh, and, you know, other entities have kind of conditioned us to think, oh, fairy tale, that's probably about a princess falling in love with a prince. So but I still like that you have like all that, like you have like an evil stepfather this time. Right. Inversions, all that good shit a lot of the components are there a lot of the conventions are there but it it subverts a lot of that stuff you know by being critical of fascism and you know so you know it's just the characters i mean between again ophelia and mercedes especially it's two female characters with a ton of agency who are driving the narrative but then you have the whole and again, I don't know if it's just how my brain works where I am not good at picking up on symbolism and I am not good at picking up on visual metaphors. Like I just, it didn't even occur to me all of the like, and I know it's right there, but just like all of the <laughs> vagina and the the blood and like what that might mean and what is the obsession with so many like male auteurs telling stories about girls going into what could be interpreted as a vagina hole and and then having an adventure there um and like what are the implications of all of that I don't know how to make sense of that I'm like reminded of my days in film school brag where I would take like film studies class that had these like interpretations that I'm just like, what are you talking about? That's not there. I don't see that at all. And then I'm like, well, maybe it is there. I don't know. I don't know. Again, I just don't know how to read things that are not extremely explicit, uh, I guess. So... Why are you roasting yourself right now? I don't know. I was was like, I'm going to let her finish, but stop (laughs) roasting yourself. Everything that it seems like I understood came from reading Guillermo's words. (laughs) Yeah. And then also realizing he just has a certain language where some of those things are kind of repeated throughout all of his movies. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I guess like knowing you're knowing his entire catalog definitely helps. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He loves... He loves asymmetrical circle things. <laughs> yeah. The Moana spiral. It's there. It's, yeah. The Moana <laughs> spiral. Um, which is also probably like symbolism that it refers to something that I don't know about. Oh, yeah. That one I'm like, not smart enough. Don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so with all of that in mind, I don't know what to rate this. I really love this movie on a like just purely like I love watching this movie. I'd give it a million nipples on our nipple scale. I don't know. I guess it would be like a f- 3.75 or a 4. It still rates really highly based on the the characters and what they do and the various kind of thematic things. I don't know. What is everyone else going to do? <laughs> I'm gonna, <laughs> Kaylin. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do three, three point seven five. I think mm-hmm. between that, yeah, because I mean, there is so much being done here in the fantasy genre that you don't get to see very much. You get to see, also like I feel like we we hit on it here and there, but like the commentary being made on class here, even though. I didn't realize when Aristotle you brought up it's kind of at the expense of historical accuracy mm-hmm. but I I really like the commentary being made on class here and the 
trauma that can come with trying to get out of the class that you were born in um, in order to survive and Mm -hmm. the sacrifices that come with that. Like I feel like Del Toro is really good at having those conversations a lot of the time and has a way of, I mean, just based on the stuff of his I've seen, he seems to be like a, a champion of the working person. I'm very critical of the upper class, which a lot of movies aren't where it's like this is a movie about a princess and it is about how the monarchy who are these people that they're in charge of we don't care Mm -hmm. (laughs) so in addition to three female protagonists that all are very different and have very different fates it makes me sad that the female hero's journey results in most likely her death but it makes sense in the story and i feel like that ties into other commentary that he's making so it works for me it makes sense yeah i do the the vagina metaphor i mean is i think i got more it doesn't really bother me it bothered me more when i found out that he's like no it isn't i'm like come on (laughs) uh the, the so maybe that was me just being a little like but it but but she walking into a vagina, Guillermo, and that's okay. <laughs> but just like, don't be like, it comes off a little fawn, like, no, 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 <laughs> don't question it, right? So so that I mean, it also is like kind of and and he's interestingly he like is very clearly inspired by another narrative that uses this exact convention of tossing a girl in a hole to learn a lesson. He is openly admitted to that, but maybe doesn't. I don't know. I thought that that was interesting. Um, I'm going to go 3.75 because that's just what I'm doing today. Yeah. I love this movie so much. It will always be my first Del Toro, my fave Del Toro, and Doug Jones forever. (laughs) That is what I have to say. Yeah, 3.75. And I'll give one to each of the main three characters and i'll give my last point seven five to the fairy that gets her head bitten off <laughs> i was also thinking three and a half but mm. i do kind of want to give it four do it because i think under a critical lens there's lots of faults and lots of things that could be improved upon or made clearer but i think overall net good it's a movie about two women, more than all three, but two women being rebellious in the face of extreme mm-hmm. oppression. And I think that is it, you know, it's not a children's movie, but it can at least be hopeful and a good lesson taught. Yeah. So net good. For sure net good, yeah. I would say four, though that mm. also feels a little, like a little bit much. Right. That's what, okay. I think I'll settle on a 3.75 because I think there's still room to maybe give Mercedes a little bit more characterization. I think there's room to have given the mother a little bit more characterization and more fully explain kind of like why she made some of the choices she's made. And yeah, it's it just could have gone a little bit further, I think, with some of the characterization. So I'll, I'll land on a 3.75. And all of my all my nipples. How many nipples does a Doug Jones fawn have? <laughs> oh, I was just thinking. I was like, he must have four. He oh. right. Oh well, if a fawn is a part goat, right? Goats, yeah. I believe. Do you have, know off the top of your head? I think they're they have like a four udder situation, much like a cow. Okay, so okay. that's my guess. I don't know. 
I really hate that this has become a part of my personality that I just know. <laughs> no, like how many nipples different creatures I have? I don't. I want to uh. really. And you know what? This ends today. This they wow. never, oh. never talk no to me about. No more cat facts? <laughs> yeah, no more cat facts. <laughs> I'm moving on to something else. What? I don't know. But anyway. Say toad facts. Toad facts. I give my nipples to the toad. Oh, yes. yes. Feminist icon, queer icon. (laughs) The toad. The toad. Watching the toad deflate never doesn't make me laugh. (laughs) When the the toad is just like, I'm a balloon. Goodbye. I love it. (laughs) I'll give my... 3.75 3.75 nipples. You know what? I'll give them to the pale, all of them to the pale man. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, we never, what was the pale man's real Who story? Is sure, he has murals of that? him torturing children hanging up in his <laughs> little cave, but like, who painted them? <laughs> Did he commission someone? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's got a whole smorgasbord of food that he that you're not allowed to eat. What is that? Is that class commentary that only the rich are allowed to eat the luxurious food? Also, shout out to the production designer of this movie for for so many reasons, right? But mm. mostly because I'm like those grapes did look good. So tasty. Usually, when someone like eats the forbidden fruit, I'm like that doesn't even look like you must be so hungry. But the grapes, you're like those grapes are gigantic. Though. Mm-hmm. So- not to get back into it, but that also was a <laughs> little bit of a, a question for me was, mm. we know that she's rebellious. So that's our understanding of why she does it purely out of rebellion, because she is so rebellious mm-hmm. that she disobeys what the fawn tells her, eats the grapes. But there's also no reason, like she is proven to be a very strong character. And, you know, never do we learn that she likes sweets or fruits or anything. We never, right. there's no like, you missed your meal there was no real reason for her to have any strong feeling towards those grapes. Right. Mm-hmm. Like she could have easily gone out of there, but for some reason we get the temptation and she hmm. fails. I was at kind that of wondering temptation. that too. Cause it's like the other comparable like story thing. I was like, Oh, it's like when Aladdin takes the lamp, but you also know why he wants to take the lamp. And that's kind of like set into his character when you know him of like, well, he survives by, taking like he has to he has to steal to survive this is built into his character where yeah it's not totally clear why she eats the grape other than the big old grape because it just looks so tasty (laughs) well there is that scene where like she's sent to bed without dinner but that happens several days before this so it's not as though she's like hungry right it's not like she's still hungry from that (laughs) right i don't know that's a really good point yeah hmm. i'm not sure well Guillermo answer that question what are we supposed to say about that sir we won't ask you about vaginas ever again we promise (laughs) well Aristotle it's been such a delight to have you here thanks for coming on the cast it's been a pleasure it's just nice to have you back I know. We lower the embargo on men, and then you oh, come yeah. on for an episode, and then we raise the gate <laughs> back up. I, I appreciate it. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> of course. Where can people follow you online and check out anything you'd like to plug? Uh, I'm Ari's Tacos on everything except for TikTok, you know, because who knows? Why, why make the account if it's not going to be there? You know? mm, hell yeah. <laughs> Always tacos and everything. But I also want to shout out 
GSA and Waterdrop and Streetwatch mm -hmm. and all those organizations and being involved with those and finding your local version of that because they're happening everywhere. And though not always perfect organizations, they are doing net good. Yes. Yeah. And the work that, uh, you know, other people should be doing and blatantly aren't. So mm. mutual aid is the way, the light, the direction. Mm -hmm. Can I also just say, Aristotle, that you posted some videos, I think in July, about like how to reduce your single use plastic waste. And I like really took it to heart. And I'm like taking a lot of measures to very drastically reduce the single use plastic in my life. Awesome. Thanks for that. Yes, I got a lot of good response from those videos, but I just hated doing it i don't i was like i I hate having this camera on me and just talking into it so i'm just gonna stop <laughs> well it worked it, it worked. worked you are legally <laughs> obligated to start a youtube channel <laughs> <laughs> well speaking of youtube we do have a channel but oh we don't God, post anything of it uh but instead yeah, follow and us don't, and don't expect that to start <laughs> no. sorry but you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bechtelcast. Uh, you can subscribe to our Patreon, a.k.a. Matreon. It's $5 a month. It gets you access to two bonus episodes every single month, plus the entire back catalog of bonus episodes. And that's at patreon.com slash Bechtelcast. With that... Shall we? Shall we go back down to uh, into the floor? Vagina. There's like a pretty. Here, I, I'm pretty hungry. If you guys want to see if we can swipe something from the pale man. Yes, <laughs> let's do it. All right. Bye. 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 Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true she pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.